On Monday, May 25th, Memorial Day, George Floyd was killed in the custody of four Minneapolis police officers. The officer's actions leading to his death violated the policies of the Minneapolis Police Department. Floyd's death became a catalyst for protests across the country. Tens of thousands of people marched from Los Angeles to Boston, from Chicago to New Orleans. And in Phoenix, protesters decried the fatal shooting of 28-year-old Dion Johnson. An undisclosed state trooper shot and killed Johnson, a black man, the same day that Floyd died. Authorities said Johnson had struggled with the trooper, but there's no footage of Johnson's death, and the trooper who shot him was not equipped with a camera. Johnson's mother, Irma Johnson, spoke at one of the protests. I I can't even explain how the pain I feel, because my son, he was a good guy. He loved everybody. I should have been the one laying here in the casket, not him. And I respect all my officers. I don't have a problem with it, but it is time for change. It's time for police not to always shoot. For some, the protests are a manifestation of the anger they feel about systemic racism and inequities in the U.S. Faith leaders in Phoenix said the anger is coming from a place of grief. In 2018, Phoenix had more police shootings than New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, or Houston, cities with larger populations. The protests coincide with the COVID pandemic, which has disproportionately affected people of color across the nation. After three nights of protests in Arizona, including damage to Scottsdale Fashion Square Mall, Republican Governor Doug Ducey declared a state of emergency. He also declared a weekly curfew, which will expire on the morning of Monday, June 8th. The curfew requires Arizonans to remain indoors from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m., with exceptions for activities such as traveling to work and caring for animals. The curfew is intended to curb protests against police brutality. Ducey cited, quote-unquote, violent civil disturbances in Phoenix, Tucson, and Scottsdale as his motivation for issuing it. The first night of the curfew, an announcement played warning protesters to go home when the curfew started. All persons are prohibited from using, standing, sitting, traveling, or being present on any public street or in any public place. However, more than 200 people were arrested that night. In issuing the curfew, Ducey said his administration had received requests from local leaders. However, the mayors of Phoenix and Tucson, Kate Gallego and Regina Romero, said they were not notified of the curfew by Ducey's administration. Annie DeGraw, a spokeswoman for Mayor Gallego, said they had not spoken or heard from the governor on this topic or any other topic for months. At the time of recording, the governor has not elaborated on his messaging or deliberation process. That includes telling reporters for the Republic who the local leaders are that requested a state of emergency and curfew. 
I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, a national politics reporter with the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national political reporter with the Republic. In today's bonus episode of The Gaggle, an Arizona politics podcast, we're talking to photojournalist Rob Schumacher about the protests. We'll also talk to City of Phoenix reporter Jessica Baim about the governor's response and the lack of coordination with local mayors. Up first, we're talking to photojournalist Rob Schumacher about the protests. Rob, what have you been seeing during your coverage of these uh, these protests? Most nights, it's very predictable of how the evening's going to go. It starts by a very peaceful protest uh, with uh, all parties involved with a, a meaningful statement to say. And as that protest and march winds down, right about sunset most evenings, half the people sort of drift away. And then uh, more serious, not saying more serious people, but the people who want to hang out all night, see what happens, stay and then during the next few hours, as the sun goes down, other protesters start making their way into the area. Um, both nights, or the, three fir- the first three nights I've covered it, the protesters have broken up into two and three and four cells moving all around the city, circling the police station, circling City Hall, moving as far as uh, I-10 and 7th Street, walking to the Capitol, going back to the police station, moving towards I-10 on 7th Avenue. They're just constantly on the move. And I know the police are having a hard time moving resources around to follow them as they make just erratic uh, movements through downtown. Then, as the evening progresses, they seem to be setting up this very serious protesters seem to be setting up shop in front of uh, the police station. And that leads to bottles being thrown and rocks, and then the police respond with tear gas and then call the uh, unlawful assembly. And then they use tear gas and uh, mace and pepper balls. And the crowd moves on, regroups, comes back, starts another march to the Capitol, comes back to the police station. So it's pretty chaotic. It's extraordinarily fluid. And there are a lot of actors and groups involved in this situation, especially late at night. How do the protests differ from others that you've covered in the past? Uh, I haven't seen anything like this in Arizona. Uh, Normally, the occasional protest will be over in hours with under 100 people or less. You know, there's been upwards of 1,000 people or more at these. Um, And again, it's way more fluid than I've ever seen. And the movement of people from the Capitol to East Lake Park to seems like the boundaries sort of like Roosevelt or or I-10 and then south to Washington Street. So it's a pretty large area um, that, and again, with multiple cells moving around and crisscrossing each other and joining up and then splitting off, it's, it's, uh, it's, I've never seen anything like it. And it's pretty dangerous out there. And, you know, we witnessed that with all the damage that's been done the last, or especially Friday night and Saturday night in downtown Phoenix. Can you give us a sense of who exactly you're you're seeing in these crowds, uh, you know, demographically, how much of it is 
people of color, how much of it is young folks, how much of it, you know, uh, just by any kind of uh, sense of, of who these people are um, as best you can, understanding, of course, that we're trying to, you know, figure this out in a, uh, in a massive situation in, in the dark. You know, I can't be exact with numbers, but roughly I divide every event in the two times of the day, the time before 8 o'clock and the time after 8 o'clock. And I would say that people of color are the majority in the first half of the protest. And then it goes at least 50-50 or even 60-40 um, of Caucasians in the second half of the evening. But there's definitely an influx of young white males after 8 o'clock at night. And what are you hearing from these protesters? We're not hearing a lot from the young white males, honestly. I think they are uh, they're kind of moving around and in and out. But, you know, mainly from the Black Lives people who are, you know, out there to support the family of George Floyd and and locally Dion, who died last week um, during an interaction with a DPS officer. So it's mainly, you know, we can't breathe is the normal chant. Um, no justice, no peace. Um, other than we can't breathe, which is sort of the new anthem that's joined this protest. It doesn't look much different from other protests I've seen over the years. And how about the police? What's it been like to interact with them? There's been some concern over how journalists have been treated. Obviously, a lot of uh, question about how they've been treating protesters and such. Uh, give us a sense of how you think Arizona's law enforcement community has handled all of this. I'll just basically take it night by night. Friday night, um, I thought... I'd never seen such extraordinary um, calm and staying back and allowing the protesters to do their thing. And I thought the police were brilliant on Friday night with just being calm and staying back and not getting involved. Um, it was really, I've never seen quite that extraordinary self-discipline from law enforcement in the middle of a very, very fluid, dynamic, scary situation. On Saturday night, they called for the unlawful assembly um, late in the evening, sometime around 11 p.m., as I remember. Um, I think they wanted to take a little bit more control and try to you know, bring the evening to an end. But I felt it was all extremely disciplined. You know, I, I was actually very impressed, even though, yes, I was hit by pepper balls um, all three nights that I was working. But I'm also kind of in the middle of it. And, you know, when someone throws a firework at the, at the police officers, they're going to start firing pepper balls at everybody in the area. So, you know, I don't blame them for hitting me. It's just, you know, that's part of the risks that I take with my job being, being there to cover this. But I still thought overall, I never saw any direct acts of violence or anything by the police officers. I was very, very impressed. And then uh, about the same thing on Saturday night, very disciplined, um, very calm. 
And then my colleague who covered the, the march last night told me it was so dynamically different looking because the governor had given us permission to be out there and the police were very respectful of that and let us do our jobs even at very, very close distances last night that we wouldn't dare get that close to them on uh, Thursday, Friday and Saturday night. So, Rob, can you give us a sense? I mean, you've been you've been out there several nights now. I mean, what what is the most striking moment out of all of this that's that's going to stay with you the longest? I think um, a colleague in mine retreated to a parking garage on uh, on Saturday or on Friday night, and we felt that conditions were just getting too dangerous to be on the street with them. Um, so we went to a parking garage and and did our job looking down on the scene. And I'll never forget from the federal courthouse to the Arizona Federal Theater across the street to the uh, city municipal court building to Phoenix City Hall, listening to the windows dropping as the uh, protesters were breaking them out. It was just boom, crash, boom, crash, boom, crash. And these are like 10, 12 foot panels that were going down. You know, and watching people try to break the break into the federal, the Sandra Day O'Connor Federal Courthouse. You know, I was just like, you don't see that type of thing in Arizona. Um, um, it, I've been covering the state for a long, long time, and it's just like I've never seen anything like that. And that night, from that upper position, listening to it was very. You know, I always remember that. Rob, you talked about the change in the the people who seem to be in the crowd around 8 p.m. during these events. Um, do you think there's any other part of all of this that uh, people who have not been on the streets like you, uh, that they, they don't understand but probably should? I just know that when the sun gets down, it gets dangerous at these events. And that's always been the case. But with the numbers being up 10, 20 fold from the largest little protests we've had during the past 15 years, that again, it's very fluid, it's very dangerous. The amount of police officers, the amount of uh, flashbang guns and tear gas canisters and, and mace, and um, you know, it's volatile. And someone could get accidentally lose an eye or be injured more seriously. Um, just because you were walking in the wrong place at the wrong time. And plus all the fireworks are being thrown around and set off by, by the demonstrators. Rob, thank you so much for, for joining us. And for listeners who want to follow along with his work and the work of uh, our visuals desk, you can find them on azcentral.com local. Joining us next is City of Phoenix reporter Jessica Bain. Jessica, tell us about the curfew. Um, can you elaborate on what the governor's motivation was for instituting it in the first place? And why did his administration feel it would be an effective tool here? So in a series of tweets, the governor 
elaborated that the curfew was at the request of a handful of local leaders. Uh, It's become clear that we're not extremely sure who those local leaders were. It does look like some of the cities were looking at doing something on their own. Uh, But we do know that the curfew came the day after uh, some uh, break-ins and uh, stealing of a lot of merchandise at the Scottsdale Fashion Square. And that has been thought to be possibly a part of the motivation, not to mention, you know, across the country, we were seeing, you know, most major cities instituting these kinds of curfews. So there may have been an expectation that Arizona joined that uh, that league of, of uh, jurisdictions. Governor Ducey said he enacted the state of emergency and curfew in response to local leaders. Um, But the leaders of the state's two largest cities, Phoenix and Tucson, said they were not told of his action in advance. What do you make of this breakdown in communication, especially because it's in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic? Sure. Yeah. And both Mayor Gallego in Phoenix and Mayor Romero down in Tucson did say that they were not notified beforehand and, you know, basically learned on Twitter that there was going to be a curfew. And both of those cities are where the vast majority of protests and criminal behavior has occurred. Um, One of the things that I think really caught a lot of people off guard was the mayor of Phoenix, Mayor Kate Gallego, said that she had not spoken to or heard from the governor of Arizona in three months. And obviously right now we're in a state of unrest and having some really difficult conversations about racial inequity. That seems like something that you would want to have two of our biggest leaders talking about. But we've also been in a pandemic for about three months. And I think a lot of people were greatly disturbed to hear that our two, you know, arguably highest leaders in this state are not talking during this time. So the last communication between Mayor Gallego and Governor Ducey occurred in the earliest days of March, as far as uh, our reporting uh, tells us. That's when they they had a conversation about tackling homelessness on a regional basis. Um, It sounds as though uh, Mayor Gallego was asking uh, the governor to set up a phone call for March 27th with regional leaders to talk about this issue. That didn't happen because of the pandemic, and they have not directly spoken to each other since then, uh, although there is some staff-to-staff communication that's going on. Can you walk us through how the offices have been communicating during this pandemic and during the civil unrest? Sure, I'll do my best. Uh, We do know that in the early days of the pandemic, there were uh, daily calls between the staff of Uh, not only Mayor Gallego, but all the mayors in the state and staff of the governor's office. At some point, pretty quickly, sometime in March, those calls were canceled. Um, So they're not having daily conversations between the staff anymore. We do know that uh, Police Chief Jerry Williams, Phoenix Police Chief, um, did indicate that she, her staff had had communication with the governor's office staff during um, these protests and the happenings on our streets in Phoenix, um, and especially regarding the National Guard and uh, 
law enforcement support. Uh, but as far as we know, they're not having communication. And part of that I think could be due to you, you just look at the timing of when this communication just dropped off. And that was right when Mayor Gallego, Mayor Romero down in Tucson, uh, Mayor Evans up in Flagstaff were all, you know, pretty harshly criticizing the governor for not acting quicker and shutting things down quicker in our state in the earliest days of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, just looking at the timing, you have to think, you know, did that end whatever amount of relationship there was? So we understand how personal feelings can perhaps play a role in some of this, but it just seems like there ought to be more communication among elected officials during these kinds of crises, not less. How does this non-communication hamper efforts to curb the protests and the virus? Well, I would think it hampers it quite a bit. Um, you know, you think of what the cities are individually doing. Uh, you know, cities are responsible for some of our largest infrastructure in um, our state, you know, from parks and libraries and all these things we rely on from day to day, which are for the most part still closed. Um, you know, if we're not communicating with the governor directly about an overarching plan for the state, it gets very confusing. And I have heard that from residents that, you know, in Scottsdale, you might be allowed to do X, Y, and Z, but in Phoenix, you're not. And um, you kind of create this patchwork of plans throughout the valley, whereas, you know, those of us who cover politics, we know where the, you know, the city lines are, but most people don't, you know, they might pass through three cities every day between going from work to home. So it, it definitely creates some confusion for the average citizen. And like you said, you hope in moments of crisis, political parties get put aside. It does not appear to be the case that that has happened in our state. It's not lost on anyone that the mayors are Democrats and Ducey is a Republican. Could partisan politics be at play here? It certainly would appear that way. Um, I was able to hear from both the mayors of Mesa and Glendale who have said they've had good communication with the mayor, both during the protests and during the entirety of the pandemic. It's worth noting that there have not been major protests in Mesa or Glendale. Um, and so the fact that those mayors were contacted and the mayors of Phoenix and Tucson, where there have in fact been protests, I, I mean, you think about what's the difference. Okay, well, Mayor Giles and Mayor Wires, they are Republicans. Mayor Gallego and Mayor Romero are not. Um, so, I mean, I think it would be hard to explain any other reason why this communication broke down. Okay, well, thank you for joining us, Jessica. Um, where can people find you on Twitter and follow your coverage? Sure. I'm at jbame underscore news. Bame is B-O-E-H-M. Well, Gaggle listeners, that's all for today. While we still have you, please don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll have more coming on this subject tomorrow. During our regular Wednesday episode of The Gaggle, we're talking to Flagstaff Mayor Coral Evans and Tucson Mayor Regina Romero. The two mayors share their thoughts on how the state has handled the COVID-19 pandemic. 
and that episode was taped before protests started in Phoenix. Interestingly enough, it also includes information about the lack of communication from Governor Doug Ducey and his administration on the pandemic. To make sure you don't miss that episode, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Audio in today's podcast came from the photojournalists at the Arizona Republic, including Patrick Breen, Sean Logan, Michael Chow, and Rob Schumacher. If you want to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was produced by Katie O'Connell with help from Marisa Dominguez. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.